Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast for another presentation of one of my guest appearances across the very amazing network of shows uh, that exist here in this alternative community, this alternative space. Uh, This year, I'm proud to say that I've had the honor of guesting on not just one, but multiple of the shows that I listened to before I even picked up the mic and started recording shows myself. Uh, Those shows include What You Heard Yesterday with Charlie Robinson, Macroaggressions, The Grimerica Show, Tinfoil Hat, of course, so many more. And obviously, today's episode, Aeon Bite, uh, the great Miguel Connor, he's had many, many amazing guests, well above my pedigree. And uh, here I am, 28 years old, just getting my feet wet, researching things, throwing my hat in the ring. He's not just another host, but a researcher as well, someone who's competent enough to go on a show as a guest. Uh, Maybe this will even evolve into a book of my own, authored by me. So look forward to that. Until then, enjoy this interview featuring yours truly on the great Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio, hosted by Miguel Connor and co-hosted by the Moondog Vance. And this episode, actually, I don't think the Moondog was there, but um, Nathan Lee... Miller Foster was a part of the show as well. He apparently is a part-time co-host of some kind on Aeon Byte. So look forward to that. If you haven't heard Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio before, they bring ancient mysteries to a modern meaning, learning the forbidden wisdom of the Gnostics. Tune in and discover how Gnosticism can lead you to your true self. And today we focus the lens on New Haven, Connecticut, Skull and Bones, and the Saturnian energy present to this day. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode featuring yours truly on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. What you're hearing is the first recording ever made of the Skull and Bones initiation ceremony. It has never been broadcast before. Fifteen new members of the club are being introduced into the macabre rituals of Skull and Bones by the senior students who are about to graduate. The club has what some might see as a strange fascination with death, skulls and bones. There's the chance too, difficult to hear first of all, but including the devil equals death and death equals death. This is an elaborate, occult, ritualistic entry into this group that they are... I haven't had this much fun since I was at a nudist colony and accidentally backed into a meat thermometer. What's going on over there? Welcome to Truth Battle. I'm Rex Smith here, sheeple. Yeah, he's an internet conspiracy guy. He is nuttier than a squirrel turd. (laughs) 
I'm going to be telling you the truth you won't get from the fake news Hollywood elites with their black helicopter chemtrails from deep state FEMA camps that hide Hillary's emails about Benghazi, written in the ancient tongue of the snake people, the Illuminati. They take supple Christian men off the street and force them in the Canaanite ritual gay sex in coffins while they dance naked, giving each other lizard man courtesy reach arounds as a sacrifice to the online meme Momo. I'm Rex Smith. Stay awake and stay vigilant. What a load of balloon juice. Hey, I heard that. Rex Smith speaks the truth, my friend. He talks about the stuff that you and the lamestream media want to try and cover up. Some audio from Netflix's The Pentaveret. The series is the usual Mike Myers, vulgar, tongue-in-cheek, sophomore comedy. I'm being tongue-in-cheek too, as we'll be dealing with loads of conspiracy theories in this eternal now. If you can't laugh at yourself, then the Archons are finger-patting your huevos and asking you to cough out your individuality. You're in a state of self-important, lifeless delirium, as we see so much in today's culture. A little bit about myself. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with two life-size companion dolls. I also do up-close sex magic. I both read and masturbate to tarot. The truth is serious, even as it's still kind of funny. Quoting Gordon White, quoting Jimmy Dore, we're at that state in culture where we shouldn't even call them conspiracy theories, but spoiler alerts. Whether it's facts catching up to history, projection, some Mandela effect fart, or the veil simply ripping apart as more awakened doesn't matter. Don't worry too much. Sit back with the indifference of Diogenes or the detachment of Carper Crates. The game isn't won in the, quote, spoiler alerts arena, but how they assist in your inward journey. What is the world, then? An illusion. One which we can either submit to, as most do, or transcend. What is it to transcend? To recognize nothing is true and everything is permitted. As Joseph Campbell said, I don't know what being is, and I don't know what consciousness is, but I do know what bliss is, that deep sense of being present, of doing what you absolutely must do to be yourself. If you can hang on to that, you are on the edge of the transcendent already. And as the Gnostic sage Theodotus said, what makes us free is the gnosis of who we were, of what we have become, of where we were, of where rain we have been cast, of where to we are hastening, of what we are being freed, of what birth really is, of what rebirth really is. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake, and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. In between those two pillars of reality knowledge and self-knowledge, bliss and gnosis, have a sense of humor and keep tearing the veils down of those, quote, spoiler alerts. Let the Hylix lose their laughter. Let the world burn with the anger of its own self-importance. 
If people can't control their own emotions, then they have to start trying to control other people's behavior. Just as important, come and stay at the virtual Alexandria. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the what's, and the where's. We will not end the nightmare, we'll only explain it. Because this is the Aeon Bytenostic Radio, an initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult, culture, and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird. This is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. I think I understand. It's not about being alone or about being in love. It's about the things you survived. As it's written, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, some are strong at the broken places. Ready for some amazing, quote, spoiler alerts? If you hadn't noticed, the theme of uncovering the spiritual and conspiratorial realities of North America has been prevalent in 2022. From the Astronosis Conference to our interview with Recluse, from the documentary Secrets of Sasquatch to Sean Stone's ideas on modern archons, it's obvious as the Empire shifts away from this continent that we release its suppressed spirits and allow dream time to return. America was built by bailing out winners, by rigging a nation of the winners, for the winners, by the winners. We'll be doing just that now as I have the honor of hosting Mark Palmer, host of My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Get ready for some intense research on Skull and Bones, Occult New England, American Saturn, and much more. Damn, I feel Mark is just getting warmed up, and his journey as a researcher is going to be rewarding for both him and us looking for those, quote, spoiler alerts. Dude is going places, and so will we during a fantastic interview. Sell crazy someplace else. We're all stocked up here. Let's continue exposing Yaldibaldi's empire, including their Karens and Katamites in the establishment. Stop them once and for all in their wicked fantasies of giving us a utopia, where we will own nothing and be happy eat bugs and live in pods and whatnot. They will do it by bypassing the sort of rational side of man and appealing to his uh, subconscious and his uh, deeper emotions and so making him actually love his slavery. I mean, I think this is the danger, that actually people may be in some ways happy under the new uh, regime. You gotta tell them, silent breed is people! Ever heard of the mouse utopia experiment in the 60s? Scientist John Calhoun created just that, 
a contained and packed commune of 3,000 mice with small but safe condos and an endless food supply. Sounds great, right? The mice didn't have to do shit but eat, sleep, and procreate for years. And shit, too. Guess what happened to this rodent's ideal paradise? Gradually, the male mice lost interest in female mice and any healthy activities in general. The female mice overcompensated for this, becoming aggressive to the point of being dangerous and ignoring their own offspring. Some mice became sociopathic and narcissistic loners, constantly grooming themselves in a state of deep anxiety. Eventually, the mouse utopia devolved into a mixture of catatonic mice and unpredictably violent mice, collapsing into a Mad Max scenario. Spoiler alert, and I'm using the term in its original meaning, and a conspiracy theory. The mice became extinct in the end. The same results happened when the experiment was repeated with rats. Please disperse! Nothing to see here, please! That's what the powers and principalities want for us. Don't you see? A society without meaning or mystery, without purpose or principles, snuffs out any spark of productivity or even the will to exist. That's why it's so important to follow your bliss and experience that gnosis, to keep an eye on the, quote, spoiler alerts out there. You are amazing and so full of potential, so don't let them take that away from you with some Schwab or Soviet or millennial utopia. Don't let them. Don't be like the meat sacks out there who are willingly handing their rights and freedoms, their very own souls to that wickedness in high places. As Alan Moore wrote, Since mankind's dawn, a handful of oppressors have accepted the responsibility over our lives that we should have accepted for ourselves. By doing so, they took our power. By doing nothing, we gave it away. We've seen where their way leads, through camps and wars, towards the slaughterhouse. And the best part, zero resistance. People stay in their pots, happier than pigs in shit quietly yearning for what you don't have while dreading losing what you do. For 99.9% .9 of your race, that is the definition of reality. Desire and fear, baby. Don't worry about the pain you might endure by taking a risk, lifting the veil of those spoiler alerts. As Beth Martins wrote, when you face the horror of the universe, you don't lose your innocence, but your ignorance. Your innocence is your divine spark, and it can't be taken away, only suppressed if you give the Archons permission. Going back to Gordon, he suggests in the same article these simple steps to overcome the Empire's dark enchantments, or when you really start losing your ignorance. He calls it magic reframing, and here they are. 1. Seek refuge in gratitude. 2. Always be on the side of life. Always. 3. Become the change. Become peace and optimism. 
Four, prepare what you can. Five, do the good that you know. Six, turn a friendly face to the unconscious. I used to think it was awful that life was so unfair. Then I thought, wouldn't it be much worse if life were fair? And all the terrible things that happen to us come because we actually deserve them. So now I take great comfort in the general hostility and unfairness of the universe. Good advice. I say write your own gospel and live your own myth. Know yourself. Go inward. Follow your bliss and embrace that gnosis like Theodotus. And you'll be fine. And you'll be even finer with our interview with Mark. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. It's a depression. Everybody's out of work or scared of losing their job. The dollar buys a nickel's worth. Banks are going bust. Shopkeepers keep a gun under the counter. Punks are running wild in the street. and There's nobody anywhere who seems to know what to do and there's no end to it. We know the air is unfit to breathe and our food is unfit to eat. We sit watching our TVs while some local newscaster tells us that today we had 15 homicides and 63 violent crimes as if that's the way it's supposed to be. We know things are bad, worse than bad. They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to riot. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. God damn it. My life has value. I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. I want you to get up right now. Get up, go to your windows, open them and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. Things have got to change. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Mark Palmer. Mark, how are you doing today? And thanks for finally coming on the show. What a pleasure. Thank you. Wow. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, you've been on my show twice, so I guess it is long overdue, and I have something really interesting to bring and present here in the virtual Alexandria. Awesome. And with us, too. Well, uh, Vance wasn't well. He stayed back at the hotel. So they sent Nathan Lee as a surrogate co-host. He's going to find out where you fans really stand. Nate, how are you? Um, I'm doing super califragilistic, excellent to lo- something lotion. I don't know. It rubs the lotion on the awesome. Uh, yeah, we're, gonna, we're already starting off well. I'm super excited. Um, <laughs> I'm a, Just for the audience, uh, Miguel and Mark are excellent people. And I'm really excited to um, be uh, the wingman and shout out to Vance, the sexy, sexy moon dog. Uh, we we miss you, but I'm I, I will do my best. So uh, thanks for uh, well, yeah, hi. As Ozzy Osbourne sang, "Bark at the moon, bark at the moon dog." That's all you can do. So awesome. 
Well, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? You're the host of the podcast, or just tell us how you tell us about your red pill adventure, or as I like to say sometimes, Mark, uh, red pill suppository, because we all don't get it. Sometimes you need that uh, that red pill to go up your rectums of reality and slowly dissolve through time, like me. Yeah. Well, I'm used to uh, whooping from my dad, so it hurt when it went in that red pill suppository, but it was well worth it. So I'm Mark. Mystic Mark is what I call myself on My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. That's a podcast that I do, and I've always been a little mystical. I've always been a little weird, so my family's always thought I was a little crazy. And uh, this story with Skull and Bones, it's not something that I pulled out of my sleeve and said, oh, let me pull a podcast rabbit. and show everybody what i've studied i've actually run into this organization in a couple different capacities uh as a student on a neighboring campus i found myself fascinated with the strange architecture the egyptian revival the gothic revival towers and all of these strange energies that are at play in the city of new haven and it's not a big city it's it's a fairly small city and I grew up nearby, found out that Skull and Bones was realer than YouTube videos suggested. And, uh, and you know, at that time in my life, I was really a novice. I had Conspiracy 101, maybe from a couple like Loose Change and a couple documentaries here and there, Zeitgeist, things like that. But I, I didn't really understand the full scope of conspiracy theory and secret societies until I met someone who I now call my mentor, uh, a gentleman named Amos, who moved from Arizona to Connecticut, and we ran into each other in a we really weird place, uh, an ancient burying ground, which is now a public park. And I was there smoking a joint with uh, a T-shirt on that had Sitting Bull's face on it. And Amos walked up to me and said, oh, little bro, what are you doing with that shirt on? And that started our our conversation and and our friendship. And I've known him for about eight years. And and he he taught me about not only the grave robbery and and desecration of Geronimo's remains, but he taught me about Native American spirituality and why he would travel all the way from Arizona to New Haven on a spiritual pilgrimage to connect with Geronimo. And, And he sacrificed a lot. He was homeless when I met him. He now has a house. Uh, he now has a job. But this was very much a, a spiritual pilgrimage. And as somebody at that time in my life who was, you know, foolishly in college, putting this big debt over my head that I knew I wasn't going to be able to pay off, uh, I said, I said, you know what, Amos, you're you're a better teacher than anyone else I've met in this school. He, you know, wasn't even a part of the school. And uh, yeah, a couple of couple months later i ended up dropping out and that went, that's what started my synchromystic journey and eventually it led to podcasting and i didn't even know about podcasting back then but it led to podcasting in this really serendipitous way and i've told that story a lot on my show and folks who are fans of the tinfoil hat podcast know that i work for sam tripoli and that was a big part of the synchronicity because I was a big fan of Aeon Byte, Tinfoil Hat, Grimerica Show, Higher Side Chats. I'm listening to all these podcasts 
And then all of a sudden I get like a claw machine <laughs> pulled out of obscurity and brought into this world. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a blessing. And I, I give all credit to Sam Tripoli, but I will reassure anyone who's suspicious. I'm as real as it gets. I've been looking into this stuff since high school, since college. And that's not long considering I'm only 27, but I found a lot. And I think when you learn how to trust your senses, your intuition, uh, the universe is just putting puzzle pieces in front of you to add to your collection. And we all have a bunch of puzzle pieces with us. And that's the beauty of these podcasts is we get to sit here at, at this wide open table and, and put the pieces together. So I have a, a couple things prepared, but if you'd like, you know, I can tell you a little bit more about my experiences in New Haven. They're, they're sort of uh, strange and synchronistic. Well, I have a few uh, questions before we really get our our hands dirty with this stuff. And yes, Sam's a great guy. Um, I think this is the golden age of podcasting, and it's just exploding. I was looking at some stats today, and it's doubled in 2022. Why? Because it's unregulated. It's like, you know, the faucet is out. And yes, you know, you get dings in YouTube or Spotify here and there. Uh, but for for the most part, it's the Wild West. And this is this shows what happens when you let this information just out there because it's really benefited people. Uh, and it's really made uh, incredible conversation, niches. I mean, for anything, whether you're into sports, true crime, knitting, grammar, or like I said, alternative history, it's a great time, and it's because, uh, yeah, the 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 faucet, the dam has broken. Everybody has an RSS feed. It's like blogging was 10, 15 years ago in another golden age of the internet when people were just, everybody was in each other's blogs and so much information was out. So, yeah, let's definitely keep the vibe. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit more about yourself. When did you decide as the... Uh, Buffalo Springfield song goes, there's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. Was there a, I mean, a lot for a lot of people, it's 9-11, the 2008 crash, the Iraqi war. There's always something that uh, maybe they said, oh, shit. Uh, the the conventional story ain't right. Mm. Yeah, thank you. Yes, that's a great question. So the 9-11 event definitely hit close because I'm, from Connecticut, you know, as you know, New Haven, Skull and Bones, Connecticut, we're it's all very close to New York City. So that was that was a big event. I was very young. I have a extremely sharp memory of that day, like many people, and I was only in first grade. So it left an impression on me and it definitely made me see the world in a fast way, you know, because at that age you're not generally thinking about countries in the middle east right so i started thinking about this stuff and i got really nationalistic i got really passionate my grandparents were conservative on both sides of my family and my parents were just blue collar working hard so to me i'm like oh god falling for all this programming and it wasn't until like middle school and high school when that rebellious edge started to really blossom that i started to question like geez like these guys are just getting drunk and rowdy around a, a fire and talking crap about these guys that they don't even know the first thing about, you know? So that the, the, you know, outward racism of that whole time really affected me. 
and I understood it, you know, it, it makes sense, but that wasn't really my wake up, believe it or not. It's a little more cliche than that. Cannabis was my wake up and it, it's, it's true, you know, growing up with conservative grandparents and also very Catholic grandparents, my horizons were not as broad as they could have been. And I was always fascinated with history, animals, anything I could learn about. So cannabis really broadened my horizons. And I've always described it as uh, like wiping the slate clean. And I was able to see the world with uh, new eyes. And I really started to understand my intuition and why I was drawn to certain books. And I was never the best reader as in, you know, finishing a book front to back. But I always had a knack for skimming and finding exactly what I needed. And that became addicting. And I just kept buying more and more books. And uh, yeah, so somewhere between smoking weed and reading uh, several different books like Mark Booth's Secret History of the World, Carlos Castaneda, and all of his books, The Way of the Shaman by Michael Harner. Uh, I dropped out of college and realized that if I became a Chinese food delivery guy, I could read all of these books in between deliveries and get paid at that. So instead of paying to learn, I started to to learn how to get paid to learn. And that's where my synchromistic intuition sort of journey really started. And it, it zigged and zagged and got me in rough patches. I lived in a fraternity house for a couple months, and that was a real slog. I mean, nobody cleaned up in that place and I was sleeping on the couch. So, yeah, uh, but that fraternity happened to have a strange connection to Skull and Bones, uh, not through direct lineage of any sort, but just, you know, two fraternities in the same college town are going to bump up against each other every now and then. And and one of our rituals uh, through initiation, this is a very slipshod fraternity. I wasn't even a student at the school, so I don't know what that says about the fraternity, but we we were led blindfolded through the streets of New Haven, and uh, the blindfold was taken off as we stood in front of the tomb. So, you know, this is one of the more shocking things because I had learned all about the tomb and Geronimo, and next thing I know, my buddies are like, pseudo initiating me in this drinking cult and it has something to do with skull and bones. And I call it a drinking cult because all they ever did was drink. I mean, it's all it was is a fraternity. People smoked weed, sure, but nobody really was interested in any of this stuff we're discussing here, which was like disappointing. The, like the stone cutters in the Simpsons, the <laughs> right. on Wednesday, drinking on Thursday. Exactly. Thing. And we had, we even had like a Jolly Roger skull and bones flag in the, the house as like a, a souvenir from probably some hijinks that went down. And that was the extent of that. But during that time, I had really like a, a, a beautiful landing pad for all these psychedelic experiences. Because when you're living somewhere where there's no parental guidance, you, you can get away with a lot. And uh, this house was <laughs> on 322 Blake Street, which, you know, 322, we all know uh, that was always the oddest thing about the fraternity. But I would do various things, mushrooms, acid at various times. And one of those times I went up to a mountain. It's really not a mountain if you're out west, but out here it's a mountain. It's more like a hill. 
Nathan knows what I'm talking about. Nathan knows what I'm talking about. So I go up to this place, Lee. West Rock, <laughs> and I I meditate Thank you, in though. a really, really deep, 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 deep trance. And I come across a deer. And this deer is five feet away from me, you know? And I don't know how I got from your question to this experience, but something was pulling me to understand the nature of consciousness, reality, but in a localized way. Because this spot on the mountain, little did I know then, had a very sacred and uh, strange significance considering what I've learned now about Skull and Bones, New Haven, and the founding of the New Haven Colony. The place that I was tripping acid was the very same place where the regicide judges fled after they king, king, uh, killed King Charles II. Uh, not only that, but that same West Rock Mountain is a part of a mountain chain that was considered sacred to the Quinnipiac, whose name gave its way to the river and the state. Connecticut is a variation of Quinnipiac. So we have this interesting thing that happens in hindsight where the life that I was leading was pulling me through these strange situations that I could really only understand in hindsight. And another example of that uh, outside of today's example, because today's St. John the Baptist Day, and I don't know if you picked that on purpose, Miguel, but that is a very significant uh, date for this whole conversation because the New Haven colony, they laid their claim on Saint, on John Cabot, John Cabot, right? John Cabot allegedly found, according to the British, found New England on St. John the Baptist Day and, and basically made the, the discovery. So they based their land rights and their property deeds on this claim. And they also founded the city of New Haven on St. John the Baptist Day. So there's this rhyming going on with St. John the Baptist Day. And of course, that's the day we're talking here. Well, another example of this is Sometime after I was a delivery driver, sometime after I was in that fraternity, a friend of mine from that fraternity got me a job in a bakery. And this bakery had all sorts of contracts within Yale University. We would do deliveries throughout their campus. And I happened to be in George H.W. Bush's house delivering pastries the same, the very same morning that he died. Now you're thinking his house, right? It used to be his house. It was now the Yale Economics Department. But in the time that George H.W. Bush lived in New Haven, he lived on 88 Hill House Avenue, the very same house that every Tuesday I would go and uh, deliver pastries in through the back door. So, And of course, I read the newspaper announcing his death in the building itself. So these are the things that smacked me in the face and said, wow, Mark, you should be talking to people about this. And I was familiar with your show and all these other great podcasts at that time. So that was one of the many coals uh, in the fire under my ass that led me to this. 
Wow. Yeah. You're on a journey. We all have a journey and a purpose, but you, unlike most people, you're listening. You're listening to yourself. You're listening to the synchronicities outside that we all have. We all have access to these divine powers. So it's great to hear. And man, yeah, you were in the, the den of evil and Nazism for all this time and didn't even know. Uh, yeah. Did, very I, did cool. I add something quickly, Miguel? Sure, sure. The, for historical context. Um, the big thing for me recently is the whole finding out that I'm the descendant of Susanna Martin, which is a woman hanged in Salem. And it helps people to understand that King Charles II was executed around the middle of that century. It's uh, so many things happening, like Mycosendagovius and stuff, like alchemists. It's such a strange period to understand that that's the period that we were coming over. The king was being executed. Uh, Mark talked about how this is where they fled. But that's the same period. About 40 years later, 1692, is when the Salem witch trials happened. And this is my Leo Moon, but it's not Nathan. It's Nathan Lee. And you will never get it. If, if anyone makes that mistake, it will be coming. It's always going to. You will always reckon with that. So, uh, yes, Nathan I Lee. immediately corrected myself. Because I know, of brother. My Leo Moon in your Capricorn, we are a great combo. I already told Miguel. Dude, I so much respect for you. Um, I want to say, too, that Massachusetts got the same thing as Connecticut. I just learned that we were named, I should have known this a billion years ago, but our education system. <clears throat> uh, yeah, Massachusetts is where the name of the tribes on the eastern side were. And there was, I think, the Wampanoag on the left-hand side. And I think that Michael Wan would be awesome for breaking this down. I just want to add the mm. contextualization of the Salem yeah. name. 40 years after King Charles. That's how well, that's how close this history is. And the connections are 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 there. We're gonna get into it, uh, Nate, for sure. There's definitely uh more than just that. So if you'll allow me, I can start getting into the history of New Haven a little bit more. I I still have a couple of questions. Yeah, here, ask away. if you don't mind. Yeah. So the audience knows and uh, yeah. You brought up Geronimo. And all three of us have, as podcasters, we've got the trick. If a name comes up, we're talking to the guests, we pull up uh, the Wikipedia tab and we read it. And then we act like we're such experts, you know, <laughs> it's the old the, the podcasting hack. But Geronimo, tell the audience about why he's pertinent in all of this. So I could never do this justice, this answer justice, because Geronimo, the weight of his um, the impression that he left on the American consciousness is huge. Mm -hmm. And it's hard for us to remember that at this point in time, but at the time when skull and bones was founded, the West was not settled and the native Americans were very much a, uh, a problem in the eyes of certain factions of the government. And Geronimo not only represented uh, the rebellious spirit of the native americans uh he also represented the shamanistic powers that the native americans were clearly tapped into uh one legend that really sticks with geronimo is the fact that he was bulletproof they could never shoot him there's even a story where a a, a bullet pierced his jacket or, or his clothing and went through his back and there was no wound right so wow. There's supernatural powers with this Geronimo and, and you see in our culture, this idea of jumping associated with Geronimo, like leaping into a pool. People, kids will scream Geronimo. Well, that comes from the U S army parachuting 
And they would give their paratroopers courage. They would say, you know, you can do it. Scream Geronimo when you jump. Scream his name. Scream it. And the reason why they told them this is because it's a mantra. Geronimo is a powerful man, a warrior who never surrendered, uh, or I'm sorry, was never killed in battle, but did surrender uh, and, and died peacefully in captivity, unfortunately. But he didn't die in battle. And... I think that was a sore spot in the eyes of the uh, colonists and the, you know, the the people founding the West, the cowboys, right? They couldn't kill Geronimo and um, they robbed his grave. Prescott Bush, grandfather of George W. Bush, robbed Geronimo's grave in the early 1900s. And uh, yeah, there, there are many legends surrounding Geronimo's death. Some people say he's buried in florida some people say uh you know he never even you know died in captivity there's a lot of legend and lore about geronimo but one thing that really stood out to me is when you look at the proper grave of geronimo in oklahoma where he's said to have died they've paved it over with concrete and built a stone monument on top of it with a headless bald eagle now, when you consider that Prescott Bush took the skull and the femur bones of Geronimo from his grave and brought them to the tomb on High Street, it's like, why would they put a headless bald eagle on top of his grave? Now, it could be some vandals that came in and knocked the eagle's head off, but uh, to my knowledge, they built it this way. And yeah, you know, Geronimo serves as uh, an icon for the Native Americans, and, and I think Skull and Bones and Yale and Harvard and the groups that they initiated that followed in their wake, groups like the National Geographic Society and the Smithsonian Society and all of these art museums, many of which are a part of Yale University's art collection and Harvard's art collection or the Peabody Museum and places like this, they've taken all these artifacts and used them to smuggle away the true history of the Native Americans by obscuring them, right? So we have in Geronimo, in my opinion, uh, a very epic symbol um, for the conquering and the decapitation of the inheritance of this land. And that's escaping your question a little bit. But yeah, Geronimo is, is certainly a, a legend and deserves to be respected even in, in posthumously you know and and the fact that his grave has been desecrated is not just morally wrong but it's a great crime within the culture of the native americans and and that too needs to be reconciled and now we have this thing called the indian repatriation act that was uh passed somewhat recently so there is hope that one day these relics and uh skulls will be taken out of the art collections underneath Yale's streets and uh, brought back to the where they belong. Awesome. Well, thanks for that. All right. Well, why don't we get into, uh, yeah, let's talk about Yale. And uh, I'm sure you agree, too, that it's fascinating because the more, obviously, the the conventional narrative of history is never right. It's just shit they gave us in high school and we pair it away in our family dinner table simply because it's easy and then we can go about our lives. But 
the more you uncover, the darker it is, even though it still leads to the same tropes of greed, money, power, uh, magic, all that stuff. So um, that's what I tell people. It's just it's an endless labyrinth. And that's that's it's the journey that matters. It's how you grow into the journey and how you become a better, more conscious person. Because, again, learning about this. You learn more about the Native Americans, the exploitation of people in the 19th century, all the wonderful uh, sacred and magical places that this country has that we st- most people still don't know about it. And what is your heritage, Mark? That's a great question. So my last name, uh, Steve's, is a mistranslation as many European to American names you know, they come from uh, Euro names. So my last name used to be Steef, spelled like S-T-E-I-F. And uh, yeah, I can trace my lineage back to this one family that migrated from Germany on my father's side, of course, from Germany to Pennsylvania. And then for religious reasons, they were sent to uh, New Brunswick, Canada, and they lived mm-hmm. where the Acadians were after the Acadians were uh, kicked out. Uh, and then on my mother's side, I have Acadian uh, roots. So my family on my mother's side comes from some of these Acadians that were kicked out of uh, that part of Canada and, and settled in Maine and, and places that became like the border between Maine and Canada. So I do have sort of strange geon- genealogy. I'm very tall. Uh, so that might mean I'm a Nephilim, but I haven't done any research further than that. But I, yeah, it is cool to to see where we uh, fit in. And, you know, Michael Wan, Nathan, Nathan Lee mentioned him earlier. He was a huge inspiration for me um, looking into all this stuff. And that's where he started, too. He found a geneal- genealogical relation between himself and someone who settled in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania and so am I, you know, I think there's this sort of magnetic thing that happens uh, when we go and look up into our genealogy and we can even maybe connect with those who were connected to our ancestors, right? In this sort of decentralized way. Very cool. Nate, any questions or comments before we really delve into Yale? No doubt. And uh, this is excellent. Um, a few things like I'm just loving the like excellent. This is good. Um, Nez Pierce comes up, Chief Joseph in Twin Peaks. That's a huge part of the whole thing. 1872 and 1873 was a lot of the, um, I think it was a Buffalo kill-off around that time period. And Chief Joseph in the Twin Peaks fictionalized story is from 1970, excuse me, 1879. Um, So just more historical context to add in there. Um, One thing I'll notice just as a pop culture thing, because Japan has no allegiances to our, right? I mean, well, maybe not as heavy anyways. Uh, to our story making, they have two characters in the Power Rangers, and this is what I wanted to tell you. This is the this is the thing that I noticed. Notice how the two enemies they have are Bulk and Skull, Skull and Bones, or Club backwards is Bulk, so the Skull Club, right? So I just wanted to add that. Mm. I think you and I have this. I have family lore of New Brunswick too. That's why I was like getting all jazzed up. I'm like. You know, I mean, my name's literally when you rearrange NFLM, that's Nephilim too. 
I'm Joe Rogan height though. So I'm only five, eight. <laughs> I think that might've been from the blood swapping or something. Anyways, we'll get another time. That's what I wanted to add was the bulk and skull thing. And to think about always we're, we are, we are Western people talking. It's so important to keep in mind, like Vedic Chinese Greek at the same time as, you know, Hebraic and Japanese, right? These are that, that really fleshes it out. Just like we don't think about native American. So mm. just, just something that I hope that adds a little bit of context. Yeah, yeah. And this story really centers around the upheaval of the native consciousness and it's stripping from this East Coast. I mean, it, it still has its roots in some parts of the United States and Canada and, and Mexico. But as far as New England goes, I mean, you're talking about 400 years of separation. I mean, other than the Mohegan Sun casinos, pretty much everybody's been uh, kicked out. I went to the Skylico Nation in the northwest corner of my state, and they couldn't even answer the door. They didn't want to talk to me. I mean, there's nobody there. If it was, you know, it, it was sad. And I, I've never met anybody from there, uh, but uh, it doesn't feel like they're welcome in this state. And I think that goes exactly back to the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the New Haven Colony and the Connecticut Colony. And one of the other little tidbits that really sent me on this journey was Peter Lavenda mentioning in an interview that uh, one of the first governors of Connecticut was an alchemist. And I thought, wow, that's really strange. And when I went and looked it up, I couldn't find anything because, of course, I looked at the state of Connecticut's governors and not the colony of Connecticut's governors. But just to get people in the right frame of reference, uh, the Pilgrims reached Cape Cod and started the Plymouth Colony in 1620. And our story in New Haven happens a little later. New Haven's colony was founded in 1638, and it was founded by three men primarily, the most notable of the, the people who founded it were Theophilus Eaton, John Davenport, and John Brockett. And at this time, their colony was the wealthiest colony in the New World. So the New Haven colony has always been focused on the elite. Um, but John Brockett is the lesser known of these men, and he's probably one of the more important. Theophilus Eaton, of course, was the brother of the first schoolmaster at Harvard. So we see right away uh, a connection to the Ivy League uh, before it was the Ivy League. And then John Davenport is a man who was educated at Oxford University. So uh, already the intelligentsia in New Haven uh, has arrived. And I can share my screen now and show you guys a little bit of my slides and people who are curious who are listening uh we have uh, much in store for this project so you'll be able to see these slides at some point in the future but uh but yeah this is the green that i started this journey on i used to sit right around there if you can see my cursor and right around there behind the churches is where i met amos uh, the first county courthouse of the colony of Connecticut and New Haven was right here, uh, where this sort of brown spot is. They've planted some new growth trees since, but 
you can see uh, <laughs> we'll get to this later on a little bit in our presentation, but you can kind of see something being hinted at with the pathways of this park here. What do you What do you guys yeah. think? <laughs> yeah, what could that be? Oh my God, it's a pentagram. <laughs> right. So John Brockett was the surveyor who laid out the New Haven Green, and uh, underneath the New Haven Green, there's about six thousand corpses buried. Uh, so this is known as the 6, old burying 000. ground. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so it was a um, cemetery. Yeah, in the, in the early days of the the colony, the New Haven Green was uh, where the three churches were. Uh, there hadn't always been three churches, but for most of the time, there were many churches that sort of revolved through the history of the colony. You know, one would usurp the other. So naturally, yeah, all of the burials were sort of centered in this area and everything outside of this nine square grid that New Haven was laid into was pretty much wilderness and, and a few farms, but mostly wilderness. At this time, New Haven was chosen uh, because it was a very deep port. Uh, the water is really deep uh, right up to the shore here. So it made for a really great place to harbor ships. And unfortunately, New Amsterdam, which became New York City and, and Boston, were much, much more successful than New Haven uh, in the shipping and trading game. So New Haven really never took off. It was actually a struggle to get a uh, the college Yale built there at first, but that's a little bit fast forwarding. So the New Haven colony, like I said, was surveyed by John Brockett. He was born in England and educated at Cambridge, and he is a descendant of a knighted man, a man who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. Uh, he was a, a dispute settler between the Indians and the government, uh, and he was also a surgeon, which I think is very, very interesting considering what New Haven has become uh, with their Yale Medical School. Harvard also has a very um, big medical program but the surgeons people don't think about surgeons in the 17th century and uh they were really very similar to what we would call a shaman in the native american culture uh they did all sorts of healing it wasn't what we would see surgeons as today with a knife and a scalpel yes they did that and they had saws and they would cut your leg off if they needed to <laughs> But uh, no, they, they did homeopathy and they were interested in, in curing smallpox, which, you know, to me, as a paranoid conspiracy theorist, when I hear that there were surgeons who were capable of possibly curing smallpox, uh, it doesn't seem to add a lot of benefit of the doubt when we're told that smallpox killed the Indians by accident, right? This mm -hmm. seems to lend to that but that's outside of what i've researched just a suspicion at this point in time so the new haven green uh and the nine square arrangement people have interpreted as being laid out in this sort of geometrical arrangement like i said there's a many many bodies buried underneath uh the grounds here so that doesn't really settle us much but uh when you look at where the ninth square is and all these other numbers I put in there. Um, when you look at New Haven today, the only district that's remembered by this terminology is the ninth square, and it's not in a numerical order. 
You see New Haven was laid out in the magnetic north, which is not geographical north. So today we look at this map and we see it oriented with the west side of the map being on the top side of the map rather than the north side. So this ninth square is right here. So when I put the other numbers next to it, you have the numeral 15, just like you would when you put these numbers in a magic square. And the truth is you can arrange these numbers in any order and it will always equal 15, which one plus five equals six, six being the sixth planet Saturn. And the Saturnian symbolism just grows from there. Uh, but you can see laid into the foundation of New Haven, this Saturnian symbolism. I don't think it was a coincidence that uh, they chose to build the New Haven green or town plot in a spot that Native Americans had already been burying their dead. This was a tradition in England to build a church on top of a prior sacred place. And they followed suit. It's also customary to plot your towns in the nine square in England. So it's not totally out of the ordinary, but having can a I, public. Can I add something just before we move yeah. on too far from that? Because this is essential. Um, this is um, called involution energy. One of the reasons that the bones are relevant is because they contain a particular crystalline, you know, and they draw a magnetic force down. These guys are using downward spiraling energy, bringing it into the, they're trying to magnetize their power to the earth. And if you look at where the sun, just imagine where that sun's going to hit, it's going to hit that nine and go all the way around uh, and form a particular circular pattern. So that would be further to look into. I was just wondering if at some point we're going to touch on the symbolism of the skull and the legs, because I can do that. But um, the skull and the um, the leg, yeah, I know, it's not a video, leg bones, and uh, especially because you got Bill Hicks pulling Keenan's leg and stuff like that on the tool thing, and that's Angel or Ankel, and I'm wondering if we're going to touch onto that kind of symbolism, you know, did they have Geronimo's legs up above his head at the end kind of question, so I wanted to mm. add that about the Saturnian thing, because you're nailing it, dude. And also 1584 is John D speaking of Queen Elizabeth. So that 84 keeps kind of doing a thing too. But I mm. got this on lockdown, man. Your cat, that's this is great. I'm loving this. I just want to Thank say you. Very, it's super enjoyable. Thank you. Yeah. And and that um examination into the symbolism of the the skull, I've only briefly gotten into that, but maybe we'll get to something that'll satisfy your your curiosity, Nate. Hold on. There are motorcycles passing, Miguel, so I'm going to mute myself every now and then. But, uh, no, okay. I understand. <laughs> okay, so with this New Haven nine-square grid, as I mentioned, you have the, the bodies buried in that center portion. And at some point, this became a problem. Uh, animals were known to dig up the bones. Uh, you had, like, pet dogs coming in the park and pulling up skeletons so at some point they decided to build the grove street cemetery and this was the first organized cemetery in the history of the united states it was the first of its kind uh, and as you can see in this picture here it has this very interesting egyptian arcway leading you into the uh, park of the dead or the garden of the dead as they called it and it says on the top the dead shall be raised and it also has an Egyptian sun uh, disc with wings on either side 
and what looks like serpents. So we have this uh, symbolism at play with their new cemetery, the first cemetery in the history of the United States of this kind. And many, many famous people are buried here. Uh, Webster, who wrote the dictionary, has an obelisk uh, commemorating his gravesite here. Uh, and many other really interesting people. Um, and I found that the architects who were a part of this construction, you see them turn up, you know, over and over and over again in other strange buildings. Uh, and I've called them like the master builders of New Haven. You have Henry Austin, Alexander Jackson Davis, and Ithiel Town. And they have built several different unique buildings in New Haven, but also across the country. We have here uh, the United States Federal Hall in New York City, uh, built by Alexander Jackson Davis. And, uh, of course, the Skull and Bones tomb, its various features down here uh, were built by Henry Austin. He also built that cemetery gate that we just saw. And I believe him and... Ithil town are both buried in that uh, cemetery. So, yeah, it's very interesting when you look at the stone and how the stone has been um, imbued with this energy and carried through these different buildings that still hold significance today. That center picture that I showed you before, that's the Wadsworth Athenium, and that has thousands of Bronze Age, Egyptian Age artifacts in it, many Native American artifacts. And it was funded primarily by the Rockefellers, um, also Samuel Colt, J.P. Morgan, um, and the Wadsworths as well are all very prominent families on the East Coast. And right in front of this museum, the Wadsworth Athenium, is Nathan Hale, in statue, right? Nathan Hale is America's first spy, and uh, and Nathan Hale has a statue not just at this museum, but in Yale's campus and Hartford, the capital. Uh, Nathan Hale was America's uh, first volunteer spy, right? George Washington asked for volunteers to go on this espionage mission, and unfortunately, Nathan Hale was the only volunteer, a very brave soul, and he died almost immediately. He was captured and, and hung. And um, what's interesting about the quote that we remember him for, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. It's said that it was possibly taken from Cato, which was a stoic poem at the time that was very popular and it had to do with the tyranny of Julius Caesar and the actual line from this play is how beautiful is death when earned by virtue who would not be that youth what pity is it that we can die but once to serve our country so you see this like really interesting um death symbolism resurrection the country nationalism it's all centered in this place new haven yale i mentioned the surgeon uh and of course i haven't even touched on the whole puritan and calvinist influence that is at play 
right down to the naming of New Haven. I mean, New Haven is uh, could be interpreted as New Heaven, right? So we have this New Heaven. Before we move uh, on from Jerusalem. Nathan Hale, just just <laughs> before ahead. we move on from Nathan Hale, he was hanged like Susanna Martin on my birthday. So Nathan Hale, which kind of looks like Nathan Lee ish, has September twenty second for his death day. Right. And again, like you know, that's my birthday, and not only that, but like, you know what? We'll just say the rest. Of, this this goes into a chain of connections, which gets absurd. But uh, the only person in Salem to be killed, uh, the only man, was killed on my birthday as well. So we're absolutely, during this time of the American Pluto return, as this country is being not revolved, we're not going into a revolution, we're going into an evolution. I want to just make sure that's clear. This is the conversation that's happening for these times. This thing, unlike um, bio things, should go viral. And uh, that's a conversation for another time. Anyways, thank you. I just want to add that he was hanged on September 22nd. So well, this and, is, and yeah, Nathan Lee, I got to say, you're like a high speed connection maker. And like, it's so much <laughs> like so slow for me. So like, I yeah. love and appreciate everything you just said, but it's going to take me a week to fully integrate that into this. So I, I, I do want to hear your comments, but I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to fully respond to them. Uh, until I have some time to it's all gravy, really... maybe it's for the audience just as much too. Some, right. someone out there well, might get sparked by that. And that's the beauty of what we're doing. And I got to thank you again, Miguel, for having me here uh, and sharing this with your audience, because I think the more awareness we have on these subjects, the easier it is for those looking to find these little kernels of truth that have been buried, uh, you know, and, that's really what we're doing here. I mean, like I said, I've been learning about this stuff for eight years. I found this book in front of me, uh, fleshing out skull and bones in a library after Amos had thoroughly scared and shocked me with the Geronimo story. And I was again, shocked to be like, wow, he was right. He was not wrong. And then, you know, however many years later, I actually have interviewed the author of this book, uh, Chris Milligan, Unfortunately, Mr. Sutton, who really sort of trailblazed this research with his book, America's Secret, Secret Establishment, um, he's unfortunately no longer with us. But Chris Milligan is. And uh, that was surreal to be able to interview him. But I didn't quite have this project in mind when I started the, podge- the podcast. So uh, I'll have to get Chris back on. But yeah, when it comes to skull and bones they're a very interesting organization and the reason i went so far as i did to look at new haven's history is because i think it's essential to understand the foundation or the nest that an egg like skull and bones could be laid in and people often forget that at this time in the country 1832 when skull and bones was founded the freemasons were enemy number one they were being used as the political um, herring and pu- punching bags, but they were also uh, very suspicious and probably deserved all that, uh, you know, flack that they got. But it caused many of these groups to want to go underground even further, while others decided to go completely public. So we have this sort of strange time in America where many of the secret societies are like, okay, well, we'll just become the Shriners or we'll just become, you know, a debate club or we'll just become 
So this is this is the transition. But then others say, okay, well, we're just going to recruit from those groups and be very secret. So what we have with Skull and Bones is actually what seems to be an inner group inside of Phi Beta Kappa, which Phi Beta Kappa comes from the College of William and Mary, right? This uh, very, very English college, comparatively, you know, Harvard and, and Yale had a sense of independence. They felt like they were a new country, you know, because of this Puritan um, ideology that was right at the heart of the founding of Harvard and Yale. And that gave them a sense of independence. And I guess my argument is that Skull and Bones was created um, post the, the making of these schools to sort of rein in the free thought and the education. I think Skull and Bones is like a splinter cell of another completely foreign organization that has sort of parasitically taken over Yale. And you see this happening uh, since 1832. Um, all of the finances were very quickly cornered. They took control of the school almost immediately using a secondary school called the Sheffield Scientific School. And they used their power over the Sheffield Scientific School to basically subsume all of Yale. And it was very quickly that the student body of Yale became very nervous. In 1876, you see this group called the Order of the File and Claw, and they completely uh, are just a response to Skull and Bones. They, they broke in to Skull and Bones' tomb, and they found a lot of strange stuff. They found German paintings on the wall. They found Whoa. black velvet uh, decorating the whole of the interior. They found uh, skulls, of course, and they found all sorts of things that basically implicated Skull and Bones in exactly what they thought, uh, which was taking control over Yale University through the finances, through the uh, blackmailing of certain key individuals, and they released it in the newspaper. Well, sometime after that, Skull and Bones and Henry Austin, this guy I showed you earlier who built the cemetery, they renovated Skull and Bones. They made it twice the size, and they took the art museum that was in a different location, and they moved it. They extended a, a bridge across the street, and now Skull and Bones' tomb is almost obscured from the public. It exists on a one-way street, and you know the other one-way street, has all this stuff going on. And because of the placement of this bridge that connects two art museums, you don't even notice the tomb anymore. So I think the, the, the clandestine nature of these groups has always been uh, present. You know, this isn't just because of the modern mass media and journalism that they're practicing in secrecy. They've been practicing this sort of secrecy for many years and in many different ways. I mean, there's even underground tunnels uh, underneath the university. Naturally, most universities back then built these underground tunnels because they didn't have the same types of snow management as we do now. But still, now that they're not using them for avoiding snowstorms, what are they using them for, right? 
Wow, that's amazing research. So to, um, I guess, to wit, if you would, Skull and Bones is a secret society as, uh, well, as uh, O'Brien tells Winston in 1984, power for the sake of power. And they probably lean on dark magic for their uh, for their goals. Um, and uh, you would say they probably lean towards war, what more black Saturn power energy or what kind of vibe? I have my ideas, but I wanted to to hear you. Yeah, yeah. It certainly seems like they're invoking Saturnian energy. Um, I showed you earlier the the grid of the of the city. But it goes even deeper. I've found newspaper articles that say when a bonesman dies, he's left a sickle and a shaft of wheat on his grave. I mean, that couldn't be more mm -hmm. obvious, right? Not to mention the each graduating alumni of Skull and Bones is gifted a very ornate grandfather clock, right? Saturn, time, right? This whole thing. So, and... Also, the clock, it's like clocks are very central to Connecticut's history. We have a, a one town in Connecticut that basically uh, was like a clock monopoly town. This, this happened a lot in the early days of the colonies where one town would become very famous for a certain product, right? We have Derby, Connecticut, and you might have heard of Derby hats before. Well, that's because they were all made in Danbury and sold in Derby. So we have all sorts of little things like that from early American history. Um, but yeah, Skull and Bones, their fascination with death. Uh, a lot of times we hear this 322 number connected Demosthenes, right? This mm -hmm. Greek. And that, I think, harkens back to the fact that these debating societies, they've proved that Rhetoric wins over truth. Rhetoric wins over logic, right? This slick tongue, this fast-talking Yankee devil trickster, right? That's <laughs> that's where this idea comes from, and we're in New England. I mean, this is this is the concept of uh, of you know, I can persuade you uh, that the truth is what I tell you it is, and you'll never know what the actual truth is. This is the Saturnian logic. So I think Skull and Bones is very much playing with this they talk about um you know this ritual where um when you're initiated which their initiation takes place on may 15th it's called tap day and then after that they go through several different uh events but people have reported hearing on campus people screaming after the bonesmen get initiated the hangman equals death the devil equals death. Death equals death. This is one of their mantras that they scream at the new guys to shock them into, uh, you know, obedient uh, fashion. And it's really no different than what we see the Marines doing to recruits and any other uh, military organization. It's no surprise that the founder of Skull and Bones, William Huntington Russell, went on to become the first uh, National Guardsmen in Connecticut. They created the Connecticut National Guard and he was sort of like their leader. Uh, so it's always been a very military, militant thing, uh, not to mention the apocalyptic Christianity uh, and the gnosis of the Templars, which is a whole nother angle to this that uh, I think is really important, especially when you consider 
the fact that, right, we're told the, the Templars are the result of Justinian shutting down the mystery schools, right? And 500 years later, these Templars come about. And then right. sometime after that, the Templars have to go underground. And then the Rosicrucians come out. And then the Freemasons. And then sometime we have the Skull and Bones, right? So right. I think they're, they're all sort of connected under this Gnostic idea of the Demiurge and connecting with the God above God, as we talk about here on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. So these folks, I think they are trying to uh, subvert the public. I think they're trying to be on the right side of God for the new apocalypse. Hmm. And I think they're using this sort of Calvinist idea of, well, we can either get on God's good side by being good little angels, or we can get on God's good side by being wicked devils and scaring everyone else into being good little angels. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of a Protestant occultism from what I hear about Skull and Bones. Uh, interesting. I, I wanted to read something, but Nate, do you have a question or a comment? Oh, man. I mean... Uh, one of the biggest things that I'm learning about now is that there are actually two types of souls that come into this world, those who are involving and those who are evolving. So these people might just be representing a particular energy that is supposed to involve. And that's from their perspective, what they're supposed to do. And it would be evil to involve, with, it, it interfere with that in a way. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Just it's interesting. Two things, uh, the hangman, the devil and death is death. Uh, that would be 12, 15, 13 for the tarot respectively. And uh, yeah, just to throw it back to the Native American thing, which we should always keep in mind with this stuff, I think, at this point, um, Peter Lavenda's brother, because I was going to mention Lavenda, and I mentioned this on stage in Cancun, where people be getting their... <laughs> so anyways, uh, long story short... Only if you're Canadian. Only if you're Canadian. <laughs> That's what you get. Anyways. Okay. So anyways, um, basically, Lavenda's brother showed up at our... Chinese New Year for my UFO group because it's UFO group uh, UFO day today as well as St. John's as well as Midsummer. So Good today Lord. is also so basically Peter Lavenda's brother Leonard Lavenda showed up at this Chinese New Year where we had a bunch of Native Americans who were also part of our group. So you're seeing just like the melange of what I'm put, laying down here. He had Peter Lavenda's brother had the same exact guitar as me. Like it got stupid trippy. Like this is like when I'm, I can't help that Leo Mooningly see you're doing the hard Capricorn work and I'm Leo Mooning, bringing it back. But this is literally like, we are the story. This is, uh, we are the bloodlines that this is happening through. Uh, that's all I got really for now. Well, um, garden of dead, of course, is G O D. Um, mm, but yeah, um, I, I don't, even... I don't know what else to add right now. This is fantastic. I, I am thrilled well, by this. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. And I should point out, and I'll show you guys something interesting here um, that to bring it back to the Native Americans, most of the Ivy League schools are all built on what researcher Peter Shampoo calls the Acadian ley line. And this Acadian ley line stretches all the way down to Teotihuacan in Mexico City. It goes mm. up through New Orleans, sort of north of Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, through Charleston, South Carolina, through Washington, D.C., through Wilmington, Delaware, uh, Baltimore, Philadelphia, uh, New York City, wow. New Haven, and Boston, uh, Massachusetts, before it goes into the ocean and, of course, makes its way through the British Isles 
And because of the curved nature of our Earth, screw you flat earthers, uh, it also goes through <laughs> Stonehenge. So uh, sorry to do that to you. Uh, I hope that doesn't get any comments. Atlantis. By your logic, this must be mm. mentioned. It's also well, and this is and this is why I said at the email that I sent Miguel, the new Atlanteans, because we talk about John D. We talk about Francis Bacon. We talk about this idea of colonizing the new world. And it mm -hmm. goes to this Atlantean consciousness. It just it always bumps up against it. But uh, one thing that's interesting about that ley line is in the history of the colonies, when they founded all of these cities that I just mentioned, at least the earlier ones, Philadelphia specifically, they knew the rest of the United States before it was the United States, the rest of North America as uh, sort of wild, untamed. So this ley line we just described was called Satan's axes to bring Saturn back into play. And Satan's axes goes straight through Washington, D.C. It goes straight through this nine square grid that we showed you here uh, with skull and bones. And of course, it goes up to Boston. So, you know, the founding of our nation and, you know, Mexico is is very much a part of this whole story because the Native Americans, although we remember them with their separate names, it's very obvious that they were one connected people. Uh, I had recently a conversation with a researcher who told me that there's evidence of a branded form of pottery, a pottery that had its own brand, right? And it was only found uh, with cacao in it. So it basically shows us that there is this cacao trading network. And they found this cacao as far north as Nunavut and as far south as Peru and Get Chile. Wow. So, so this... Right. So this cacao was being traded all along the Mississippi, all through South America. And, you know, we all know cacao only comes from a specific place. And you yeah. can't grow cacao in New England, but they had evidence of pottery shards with cacao residue on it here in New England and all across North America. So and of course, this type of stuff is obscured by the organizations we mentioned earlier who all had their founding with men in Harvard and Yale. Ezra Stiles, one of the first presidents of Yale College, was fascinated with Native American history and Native American culture. And he was known to collect this stuff. He had what the natives called the Manitou stone, a god stone. And these god stones were shaped like human beings. They had like features like a man, right? They were very rough, rough stones and the theories are that these stones were found not carved they they found stones that looked very uh, amazing and and to them spoke that you know hey the creator is creating these stone beings too right so Ezra style he he stole that manitou stone it never saw the light of day after he found it uh but what's interesting about skull and bones is they have one other location that they're known to go to uh, it's famous from their movie Skulls, right? This Deer Island. And Deer Island is in the Thousand Islands, where we get the word Thousand Islands dressing. And people might hear Thousand Islands dressing and think, oh, that's some <laughs> kind of tropical thing. No, folks, that's from upstate New York, believe it or not. Uh, so, yeah, it's right in between New York and Canada. And in the early days of this land, 
the Native Americans called those islands the Manitou Islands. So Skull and Bones has their little retreat stone house center in the Manitou Islands. Uh, and the connections, I mean, when you factor in all of the ley line arrangements that Peter Shampoo has shown, it is maddening. <laughs> it's a lot. Uh, I really love it. And I think people should check out his work themselves. But yeah, it's it's very strange. And then the other thing that we see with Yale is a very strong connection to the Welsh and the royal families uh, of the old world. You know, we're talking about nobility from the Roman times that made their way from Italy to France to the British Isles, changing names, changing genealogy or changing, um, you know, nationalities as they uh, buy new lands. But, oh, yeah, the Welsh, Madoc, Prince Madoc. Are you familiar with King Arthur and Prince Madoc's story? No, no, not that one, no. So apparently King Arthur and Prince Madoc, Prince Madoc is a, a, a younger, um, I think he was uh, a cousin or a brother of King Arthur Jr., like a younger King Arthur, not the King mm -hmm. Arthur of our legends. And at this time, Krakatoa blew up or one of these big uh, Southeast Asia volcanoes erupted and the whole sky went black and people in England had a very hard time surviving and many of them left and went to France and Spain and other places um, but that were warmer but some maybe Prince Madoc sailed to the new world as early as 10 uh, or I'm sorry <laughs> 810 AD right 810 between 810 and, and the thousands it's always hard to Speak right. yeah. that time period into you know quick verbiage but anyways so around this early early time uh the welsh might have settled in where i believe you're kind of close to miguel in the great lakes region they sailed down the saint lawrence river and made their way into the great lakes region and uh some evidence that maybe points to this is the mandan native tribe had very pale features and you know we've heard lots of stories like this uh of white tribes and i kind of think that it could be a mix of one of two things this myth of land rights where you know the new world the new atlantis they were trying to drum up this story of how they had the right to to own this land over the native americans so they came up with things like that like oh well the welsh you know we were here first or uh, the new Israelites, right, the, the lost tribe, they were here first. The Mormons have lots of stories like this. So it is a little risky because I do give um, a lot of respect to the Native Americans. And I believe that what happened to them is still to this day, you know, not reconciled. So, yeah, I, I don't want to promote a claim that the Europeans were here for super long and, and give people the wrong impression but there are stories like that and we've heard about the vikings trading with tribes in in canada and and north new england maine region we have templar runes that are allegedly all in this area scott walter talks a lot about that so i think the history of america is much deeper than we're led to believe 
We've been given this Thanksgiving myth that all the pilgrims and the natives got along and broke bread. And that's certainly not true. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out, but it definitely feels like there was a purposeful rewriting of history to savage to to you know make the natives into savages when really they were sophisticated they had astro astro archaeology right this whole concept of uh mm -hmm. stones that that told them what would be in the sky and everything was measured in a way that said okay well they must have been using some kind of mathematics here so i think we're only beginning to uncover that side of our history but unfortunately there's a big big gap right like i said it's 400 years of time that's passed since the europeans uh stepped foot in new england so yeah no oh, that's a nice journey yes there's so much we're learning and of course as anthropologists would say people are people uh the natives had of course uh, they were human they fought wars there was uh, human sacrifice sometimes cannibalism they had their dark side just like just like the europeans or the mongols or, or you know aborigines tribes wiped out other aborigines tribes that's it we're not here romanticizing things we just want the truth and right. we want to focus on the best parts of these cultures that deserve well to be and addressed. i think yeah, and I think what's so interesting is, you know, and Nathan Lee brought this up earlier with the witch trial thing. We have this really dark history of the witches, right, in, in New England. And what were witches? They were dealing with folk craft. They were dealing with herbal medicine and things like that and, and earth magic. The native shamans were doing exactly that. And I think there was this blending of culture that took place that, the church fathers did not uh, ordain and they were not happy about that kind of thing. Can I jump in just, to, just yeah. to your point? It wasn't just dirt magic. Like I hear ditch witch and I want to be like Vom. Um, the, there were actual um, instances of like people like this gets into the double slit and quantum. We're not going to go there just right now. People were vomiting up nails from their, they were coughing up blood. People's jaws were getting, if you've seen strange, and I had to mention stranger things is something you said earlier in this. And someone else who's listening will know the point that it was, this is absolutely stranger things like connected, especially with Montauk thing, but people were vomiting up blood and their jaws. The reason I brought up stranger things and I remembered too, is like their jaws and like these people were in the courtroom would just like, like go right oh, out of their sure. thing. So there were real things happening as well. So I just thought I'd add that. That's um Stephen. I'm so sorry for the pause here. Stephen Hawley Martin, a witch in the family, will actually break down the stuff and even gets into the quantum uh, and also even into what's it, Rupert Sheldrake. So this actually explains witchcraft in a way that no one has really heard of before I can say that. And I just thought I'd give a shout out to the Stranger Things connection because that's relevant. And also to this actual phenomenon of people vomiting up like not iron nails and blood and stuff like that. There was real stuff going on. Like, mm. anyways, yeah, I just thought I'd add. Well, and, and, and not just that. I mean, we have a lot of these early uh, religious pilgrims, you know, people who were escaping the uh, atmosphere of the old world to have right. religious freedom. There were many, many groups that came here and found a lot of things in resonance with the Native Americans, like the Shakers. They were these groups of people that they loved to do these ecstatic dances. And 
I mean, the natives were doing those sorts of things. One of the first, um, you know, encounters between a European and a Native American was uh, Mr. Hudson, who whose name was given to the Hudson River. And as he was sailing up the Hudson River, they came past a place called Wappender Falls, which is now where Alex Gray has uh, his Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. So it's very significant still to this day for spiritual energy. Uh, Yes, yes. So when it comes to Wappinger Falls, there's a specific area, uh, and I'm not remembering the exact name, but it's Devil's something. It's like the Devil's Tower, Devil's like Dance Yard or something like that. And uh, they would name all of these places Devil this and Devil that when they would see Native Americans doing rituals. You know, they would stand around a fire and dance and have all Wisconsin their has a lot of devil legs, devil legs, so probably same thing. Yeah, which devils. is super crazy because when I was at Cosm on their Leo members barbecue, I was literally doing what you're like. You're blowing my mind. Like I was literally like at the fire at the end of the night, like doing this crazy ecstatic stuff, and everyone was like, "Who the hell is that guy who looks like he's about to be that guy at Burning Man?" But anyways, <laughs> it, totally right on point, man. Well, oh, yeah, and Coulter. And then- Sorry, just John Coulter also found a human-sized skull rock, and his uh, he was one of those kind of guys out in the West, and they called it Coulter's Hell, and this was mm. uh, what they now call Yellowstone. So I just thought I'd bring that in there. It's totally mm. relevant. Yeah, and you know these rivers, the Hudson, the Connecticut, the Delaware, and the Susquehanna River, they're the four major rivers of the East Coast, and they were very tra- well trafficked in those times not just by the Europeans, but by the natives. They had a whole system uh, that they traded with one another. And that's why it gets so complicated when we look at like these treaties and these deeds, because you find out that the natives, they were migratory. They weren't nomadic, but they were like people who go from New Jersey to Florida every change of season, you know, like they did the same thing. Essentially, they would go and spend time, you know, getting oysters when the oysters were ready to be gotten and they would go up north and kill some game and get some skins you know they were using uh the land to the fullest and here come these colonists with a completely different way of life just okay we're gonna set up here it's permanent we're gonna make everything out of pretty much stone it's never gonna move (laughs) this is where we're staying forever and you know you have this amazing clash of consciousness and that's why i think this like John Brockett, surgeon, surveyor character is so interesting because you see the history of New Haven uh, become, you know, a part of this medical world. New Haven, Yale University is one of the biggest hospitals in the country. Uh, John Hopkins is another big hospital that was founded by a Skull and Bones uh, alumni. Many other uh, really interesting organizations were founded by Skull and Bones members. Not to mention they innovated the shale oil fracking business. So all the destruction that that's caused, uh, I'm sure people know. But yeah, man, I mean, and then you talk about the opium. I mean, we, we have this new world full of tobacco and this tobacco is pure. It's, it's used in a ceremonial way, we can imagine. It wasn't smoked in cigarette form like we have today. Uh and it's taken and it's really just saturnized, you know, it's alchemized, <laughs> you know, they take this tobacco and they bring it down to its like worst parts and, and, and mass produce it. And you saw that with 
cannabis, and then you also see the uh, mass wealth of the elite establishment on the East Coast come from not just slave trading, but opium trading. They brought all this opium uh, in their East India Trading Company. Yale is named after Eli Yale, a governor of the East India Trading Company, whose genealogy goes back to the conquerors, the Norman conquerors of the British Isles. So, you know, very deep, deep connections there. But yeah, it's all drug money. It's all blood money. And this is the this is where the pirate Templar connection comes in. And it's it's like you want to turn yourself upside down on your head when you see like the pirates, the witches, the masons, like all of these figures, Indiana Jones types that we see in our pop culture in the movies. You know, they come from these groups, you know, they come from this time period and they're all sort of the same characters to just taking on different uh, roles. Fascinating. Yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about because people may say, uh, yeah, what what does the skull and bones actually mean? And obviously most people think of the uh, Jolly Roger and all that, but it goes uh, deeper to actually Mithras. And I know, you know, gods like or entities or egregores, whatever you call like Mithras, Saturn, Marduk are similar, Aeon and so forth. These are the gods of civilization of order of contracts if if you get into these gods you're going to do very well and people across thousands of years have gotten very well with these gods now uh i think uh jason georgiani in his book iranian leviathan does a good job because he shows that the uh, skull and bones was used in roman times by the cilician pirates there were these persian pirates there were these cross-dressing, altered-state, Mithra-worshipping pirates who pretty much controlled the Mediterranean. They were kind of like the Vikings. They were like, they either uh, harassed the Romans or they did business with the Romans. You know, true capitalists. And the Romans just dealt with them. But as Jason writes, he writes in his book, the quote, Jolly Roger or Skull and Crossbone pirate flag is Mithraic in origin. The crossbones represent the Greek letter chi or the X of the intersecting zodiacal circle and celestial equator, and the skull designates this earthly plane of astrologically marked time as the realm of fateful death. The mock interment rituals of the skull and bones fraternity can be traced back through Freemasonry, all the way to the ordeals of being buried alive with that initiate into the first grade of Mithraism, the grade of the raven, had to undergo in order to transcend this realm of death. So, yes, Mithras is in the background with, with uh, Skull and Bones and Yale. I love that. Wow, Miguel, thank you. And I just found a really cool article online uh, thanks to the, the info you just gave me. So, wow, this adds another dimension to it. And this project is is ongoing. We're Endless. hoping to create... Yeah, oh, it's... Yeah, I don't know when it will end, but we're going to create a sort of uh, audio documentary, uh, which is, you know, uh, hopefully portions of this interview might make their way into it. It's going to be a sort of integrative audio documentary and I really appreciate you giving me a chance to share all these ideas here. Um, but yeah, I, I'm sort of baffled a little bit now because I've had something I was going to bring up now, but uh, 
now I forgot. Come back. So you can actually walk out of where you are right now and go see all this shit. You can go to Yale and all that, and you're still alive for some strange reason. It would be it would be a long walk. I don't live that close oh, okay. to New Haven, but uh, I'm. It would be a short drive. That's for sure. Um, so yeah, absolutely. And and I should bring up that this Garden of the Dead that we talked about before. Um, Chris Milligan in his book writes that it's like Hermopolis. They're trying to uh, bring up this Hermes with this uh, eight configuration. I forget exactly how he puts that together, but there's this eight symbolism with their cemetery there. And since it's St. John the Baptist Day, I would be really upset if I forgot to bring this up. There's a strange crypt in the Grove Street Cemetery, and it's the crypt of a man named Samuel St. John. And I was not able to find much about who Samuel St. John was in New Haven, but I did find that he is uh, connected by blood to another knight. Again, we have more knights. <laughs> and then also he was uh, connected to this sort of French name, this Saint Jean, Saint Jean, right? So this idea of ascension, right? Ascension, because the name game, right? They spelled this name Saint John differently as they traveled through different countries. And the word uh, S-E-N-T-I-O-N, Saint-Jean, was the sort of French version of this. Uh, but whoever this Samuel Saint John guy was, uh, they certainly made a really strange crypt for him here. And I wonder if that's to symbolize St. John the Baptist or St. John the Evangelist and his role in their uh, rites. Because I think having all of these buildings where they are, you know, it's not just the tomb. We have the book and snake tomb. We have the scroll and key tomb. There's the wolf's head lodge. And the Wolf's Head Lodge, that's uh, Wolf's Head is, I think Nathan Lee told me this, Wolf's Head is like a uh, name, another name for the son of a mason. Uh, and their symbol is on top of uh, an upside down onk, a decapitated wolf's head, right? This is, <clears throat> this is a, a secret society that is one of nine secret societies in Yale. And... Some people say that the Wolf's Head Lodge was like a response because they felt like not enough elites were being included in Skull and Bones. So they had to go and start their own rival club for the families that weren't being invited. Uh, and I've actually been in the old Skull and, or I'm sorry, Wolf's Head Lodge when I was a delivery guy. I brought pastries to this strange art department. And I'm like, huh, I know, I know this building. It's got these really really striking steel gates like like they were really like worried about people breaking in because they're like sharp you could die on these things and it's a very strange uh it's very strange building and it stands out because everything around it is now very modern lots of glass so it's just this old old wolf's head lodge sitting there and i i delivered some pastries and i asked the woman who let me in, you know, oh, what's this building about? Can you give me a tour? And she was thrilled that I was interested. So she gave me a little tour. And although it had been converted to a place where they ran classes and courses and stuff, it still had a lot of the original 
features of the building interior. And one of the things that really struck me was they had converted the dining room area into a classroom with a big wide table, the same way you would with a dining table. And over the dining table was this balcony and a window with a circle glass window with, uh, you know, the sort of globe symbol. And uh, one of the first things Amos taught me when I was really like green and new to all this stuff is that symbol, which I said is in the Wolf's Head Lodge, but it's also on the banking building in New Haven. He said it's a symbol of globalism. It's a symbol of people taking over the globe, you know, and if you look at the way John D plotted out those maps and how they, you know, surveyed things back then, you can see how this symbol might be uh, significant for them. You know, they were chartering this world. They were carving it out on maps and, and planning it out in these arrangements. And a lot of thought went into even, uh, aligning these city grids and layouts with the stars and and the planets. And yeah, I found it uh, really fascinating how, how many times this stuff tends to rhyme and, and yeah, I want to go into that pirate Mithra Greek connection even further. Um, The other thing that kind of stands out is we're told that John the Baptist skull was used by Templars, right? As a Mm -hmm. sort of Oracle, they would stare into it and then, there's another group, the Scythians, who would drink out of skulls, yeah. right? So I think these rituals are certainly at play. Uh, I've heard rumor that this upon death of a bonesman, they will come to him before he dies with a skull, and they will try to transfer his consciousness while he's still alive into that skull before he passes, and, and it's a way to sort of preserve the alumni uh, posthumously in the the tomb there without actually desecrating their grave. So and they also and, and, don't have the Futurama head jars yet either. So <laughs> well, uh, just as exactly. a quick in, yeah, a quick insight uh, to a potential meaning behind these. Uh, and please don't lose the Futurama thing. Uh, the uh, drink slurm and all glory to the hypnotode. But anyways, the point is is that uh, Saint John the Evangelist and Saint John the Baptist. Uh, the anima mundi of the world, uh, because of the manifestation or the moonifestation, and we don't need to go to mother's milk and cheese and the moon is cheese and stuff. Basically, cancer is where, right where we are now, is where this uh, world begins in a way. And I believe that would be for, um, depending on how you shake it out, the devil is descending energy, and that is going to be the other St. John. So one of them might represent ascending energies, and the other one might represent descending energies, which is just mm-hmm. my like hot off the, you know, off the cuff, hot take kind of thing. I think that uh, the St. John that we're at right now is the Baptist, obviously. And you can think cancer is water is baptism. And then evangelist, well, Capricorn, let's not even get started. So basically the whole thing is the difference between the ascending and the descending energies potentially. And that's, you know, your checkerboard right there. So I just thought I'd add that just for, um, you know, some maybe insight. No, and I'm glad you brought it back to to St. John because that um – Striking architecture I showed you guys before the cemetery gates with that sun Egyptian sun disc on it. The only other place you see that Egyptian sun disc is on St. John's crypt inside the Grove Street Cemetery. And it's not just him that's buried in this plot. The other two graves uh, that are directly in front of his crypt are sort of in a tri arrangement. So we have two and then the one. And um, 
those two people are from the Sheffield family, which, as I was describing earlier, the Sheffield School, named after members of the Sheffield family, were central to this plot to take over Yale's finances and basically own the school. Uh, and the order has basically, you know, run this school since. I mean, they they have all the right people in all the right places. Uh, the one of the recent owners of the New York Yankees was a uh, former president and of Yale and also uh, Skull and Bonesman. I think his last name was Giamatti or something like that. And he has this same family connection to Eli Yale. It goes back to those Welsh guys that I was talking about who descended from the conquerors, who conquered the British Isles, who came from the Normans, who came from Italian nobles. Well, these Italian nobles... They're called the Garadinis, okay? And the Garadinis are famous because one of their daughters was the woman who is depicted in the Mona Lisa. She, she stood as oh, the wow. model for the Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa has only come to America. The first time it came to America was thanks to Kennedy, married to John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and the Fitzgerald clan is the same clan that Eli Yale connects to. And this clan connects to the Gerhardinis, who are related to the Monota. So we have JFK and Jacqueline Kennedy being the ambassadors to the Mona Lisa with this blood relation to the exact woman who was depicted in the Mona Lisa. Uh, so, and I'm no... You know, King Kill 33 JFK expert, but I can tell you that there's a lot more there with JFK and Skull and Bones. I mean, that's that's a yep. whole nother documentary all to together. Down and to the left is the spell. I want to make sure people hearing this. This is one I figured out that I'm very proud of. Uh, down and to the left is how you keep hearing that old story. Do, do you guys know what I'm talking about? We all know that. Like, oh, back into the left, down into the left. That's where they were talking about for Kennedy's head. Well, um, that is a, if you look at Alex Gray, Wappinger Falls, recent tool art, he's describing the difference between the down and to the left versus the up and to the right. So they were cursing Kennedy in that moment by pairing or twinning him with that concept of back into the left, down into the left. Back is down, basically, backwards. So I wanted to make sure that was put in there because that's a big part of that spell. Um, yeah, very, uh, very important. And uh, audience can't see it, but we do have the invisible uh, St. John's, uh, the Baptist. Uh, I think it's the Baptist head right here. So the invisibles even made a big thing out of that. Well, so and that's in the invisibles are on these bloodline things. Go ahead. Excuse right. me. Sorry. Thank you. That's the bridge to the Futurama thing. That picture you just showed me, Nathan Lee, because uh, this is all a transhumanist agenda. I mean, to go and like put every conspiracy trope in this soup. Uh, you know, it all it all connects, man. And, and the Futurama thing really got me jazzed up because I remember like I liked Futurama. I only watched it because it was on TV as much as it was. You know what I mean? Like I was kind of I'm glad I don't watch TV as much as I used to. Let's just say that. But I remember that Futurama scene, that familiar scene with the room with the heads in the glass jars. And that's exactly what's going on in the tomb at Skull and Bones. They have this room downstairs, it's very reminiscent of the catacombs, this wall of skulls. And what do they do there? They channel the energies of these dead people. We have Geronimo, we have Martin Van Buren, one of the only presidents that isn't, G 
I'm sorry, the only president who isn't genealogically related to all the others, which is strange. Uh, they have his skull and many, many others. I found a newspaper article uh, from the 1800s. And these Chicago businessmen were on a hunting party in the Southwest territories before they were states. And they were hunting and they came across this outlaw named the Apache Kid. And you can find this newspaper article. It's out there. Uh, it was reported in several different uh, newspapers. The Chicago businessmen caught the outlaw, the Apache Kid, who was not Geronimo, a different guy, but he was around at the same time as Geronimo. They shot him. They surrounded him, you know, in his camp and shot him at dawn. And then they covered his body with a blanket and came back a few months later and grabbed only his skull and his femur bones. And where did they send them? To Yale University's skull and bones department is what the is what the Whoa. article says. So you got to imagine these guys, you know, and the irony of that back then, like they're they're sending these, you know, skull and bones to something. They're like, well, who's going to take care of these skull and bones? Well, of course, the skull and bones department would not knowing <laughs> what they're actually doing, you know, and who knows? They're Chicago businessmen. They could have been from the University of Chicago, which, of course, has its own. Uh, groups like Skull and Bones, because all of these colleges have served this function. It's not just Yale. It's not just Skull and Bones. Harvard has the Porcelain Society, and I'm sure anyone who's interested can go and find their local university, specifically the Ivy League schools, and do a similar job at uncovering this work. I mean, in my opinion, Skull and Bones is the spark that created this neo-mystery school movement within the university system here in the United States. And that could be very well a great thing. I mean, we could be talking about a, a new enlightenment in a sort of, uh, in a way, and it could lead to some, you know, rough occult weird things. But I think in a, you know, suffering creates growth sort of way that, you know, these people are Gnostically uh, pushing us towards our evolution, as Nathan Lee's been hinting at throughout this conversation. I mean, like I said, you got the, you got your your own oracle here, the occult fan, Miguel. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, femur uh, is F E for iron, and mer is like mare is C or rum mare. So femur, I'm trying. You got to break down the Latin on these things. Speaking of Latin, guess who else has their skull and bones in Vatican? So I'm just saying, probably Indonesia. Probably we got to look into these like things really holistically. But yeah, the Iron Sea, and uh, also what about uh, who's hold who's hiding the giants' skulls and bones? Is that what builds Disney World? Is that how we built? Okay, I'm just throwing <laughs> throwing things out now. Well, uh, such a wonderful rabbit hole. I think yeah, I think that connects too. I mean, we talk a lot about uh, the Native American artifacts and all of the secrets that they're hiding by smuggling them away in these museums and whatnot. Yeah, what don't they show us? I mean, it's the same thing with the dinosaurs, right? We're told the dinosaurs are are not what we see in the museum. Those are just plaster casts and the real bones are in the basement. So if that's true for the freaking dinosaur skeletons that Jurassic Park is based off of, I mean, think about what they're doing with these legends of cowboys and Indians. You know, it's as, it's as fictional as Jurassic Park, in my opinion. And I think that's uh, that's kind of 
even more interesting when you consider that Yale is uh, built in a place where they found a lot of dinosaur bones. And when we're talking about the, the Welsh connection, you have this red dragon on their flag, this red dragon emblem. And Peter Shampoo, who I've mentioned several times, he's a big inspiration, uh, as well as many others. Michael Wan, Ross Ben, definitely check out their work if you like this research, because I'm just standing on their shoulders here. But that Peter Shampoo talks about uh, this red dragon in North Haven. And North Haven is like right in north of New Haven. And throughout uh, this area, there are these red mountains. Uh, trap rock mountains they're very red and they the dutch who came here they named the place like uh red rocks i don't know what the dutch word for that is but uh the native americans they call this mountain sleeping giant <laughs> to bring the giants up hmm. because in their legends they had ketan and hobomoko these two giants and ketan was benevolent uh, and Hobomoko was not so benevolent, but he wasn't explicitly evil. He's more like what we might see like a trickster or maybe even Saturn, right? The old god, right? So Hobomoko dies in this battle and Hobomoko becomes the mountain that is Sleeping Giant. And as you're driving away from New Haven on the highway north, you can see this mountain that has a head a body and feet, just like a person if they were sleeping on their back, you know, and uh, and this just, you know, whether it's an actual giant uh, or not, and whether there's actually a dragon that these paleontologists have been digging up in the deep, deep marsh here in, in North Haven, you know, who knows? But I think when we re-examine America without this scientific lens and more of like a folklore lens that we give to like the legends and the history of Europe, you see that, oh, okay, there's so much more going on. Uh, and yeah, it's not just ditch witches getting hung, Nathan Lee. <laughs> I want to say just in my book, I learned that it's um, like, you know, the three of us are hung, but witches get hanged. Right. Oh. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure that was. I just want to make sure that's clear. But um, Rabelais talks about Gargantuel and Pantagruel. It was a Rabelaisian joke I just made, and uh, Vine Deloria is worth mentioning if if um if we want to bring up the Native American aspect of that. Vine Deloria has done some great stuff on this more like less science, more folklore kind of as angle. Just to your point directly, dude, that's amazing about the dragons. You actually like that's ripping the mind right open. I think there's something because demons, well, dragons, you know and what then I mean. We have D, but, Demon, John D, and the Newport Tower, right? I mean, there's that connection between John D and the Newport Tower, and the Newport Tower is all uh, in this arrangement and Templar connections. And yeah, it is It is a lot to parse through, and, and I hope to make it as concise as possible in the future project that'll be coming soon but yeah i mean can i just give you a compliment quickly you're 27 look at miguel look at like if you think this is cool shit like look, look at what we got here he's already you're doing so much i'm so excited for you that's what i have to say that's i'm grateful yeah. i'm excited that's what i have to say yeah yeah i agree you're going uh yeah i love where you're going and uh, glad you're going there and thank you at least you're self-aware 
So yeah, awesome. I you know to your point earlier about I could just walk out of my door and and go to this place and how have they not got me yet? It's it's yeah I I think about that a lot and I don't think I'm doing anything special. I appreciate the con- compliment, Nathan Lee, uh, but I don't think I'm doing anything special because there are so many others that I've learned from that have really done hard research, and I'm really more of a synthesis synthesizing these things in a way that is approachable for people because my goal really is to help people understand how to do this research for themselves rather than to just learn from this research, right? Because it's, it's about uh, raising the awareness of consciousness. So yeah, don't teach them to fish on St. John the Baptist day. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. We got to teach them, teach them to fish and uh, geez. Yeah. This is why I love having this Oracle here because I didn't know that I wouldn't have pieced that together that fast, but yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, but I'm not worried, Miguel, because I think all of this stuff has been put in print already. And I think part of their skull and bones magic is to have it be figured out one day. They leave the, the cipher out there for you to decode uh, if you can find the key, right? You just have to look for the keystone, right? <laughs> it all started for me with Michael Wan in the Keystone State. So that's kind of how uh, everything kicked off for me. And, and that's why I try to give, give as much credit as I do to the people I've learned from. Uh, and I've interviewed a lot of them on my show too. So that's kind of the goal with the the podcast is to take certain conversations that I've had, braid them into this audio documentary with original interviews uh, as well from different experts. We just interviewed Troy McLaughlin last night who showed us a bunch of connections to the Saturn death cult and that whole thing. So yeah, it is, it is interesting. A lot, a lot to go off of. I rambled a lot. I feel like you didn't get to ask a lot of questions. Could I, could I add a quick last thought? Is that, if that's all right, just about the, the stranger things in the, the, the first two lodges in this country were Massachusetts and Pennsylvania that spells a map. And also in Stranger Things, we're talking about the Nina Project, which is really about NASA. That's my quick point. That's it. Awesome. Yeah, we are at the end. It's really been a great conversation, and we've covered a lot of ground. We certainly look forward to more of your research. Makes sense to me. So, uh, yeah, uh, Oracle of a Cult fan, thanks for being the wingman or the red dragon man for this show. Thank you. And uh, Mark, uh, really enjoyed it. Where can people find out more about thee and thy Excalibur? Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, my family thinks I'm crazy.com is a place to find all of it. You can find my show and all the other shows I do. And then altmediaunited.com, the podcast cooperative that Miguel Connor and Aeon Byte is a part of. That is also my website and my project. And uh, if you have a podcast and you're listening, to this hit me up you could be a part of it too it's uh welcome we all all have a podcast or put brilliant stuff out there so hit me up yeah yeah i would definitely join uh, definitely subscribe to his podcast definitely join because just because it's a golden age of podcasting doesn't mean that the censoring pen of the archons is coming either it's gonna come it might be five years might be 10 years it might be tomorrow so yeah 
keep your stuff safe. Don't uh, rely on corporations like Apple or Spotify or even your own website because that could be taken away like that. So yeah, spread spread that gold. Like you know, the research people spread all this stuff, and we keep panning for this gold and putting it out there, making it into alchemical gold. But I am now getting into a tangent. Well, Mark, this has been a really fun conversation. We look forward to whether I'm with you or you're back with me. This is how it works. And thanks for coming on AM Byte. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. When you reach the end, you cannot complain to the manager. No returns, no exchanges. Life is not refundable, your body is just packaging, sent back for recycling. There never was a warranty, make the best of that until it's time to go. All right, and that was my interview on Aeon Byte Gnostic Radio. Really happy to have gotten that invite really appreciate it i full disclosure asked miguel and he was all for it so uh sometimes you just gotta knock on the door sometimes you just gotta throw your name in the ring so uh, again like the last interview that we presented this week uh this interview took place at a time when i still didn't have all the information that i do now it's one of my earlier interviews on this subject, and uh, yeah, I've come to rescind my thoughts on the Magic Square thing um, until other evidence presents itself. I don't think that there is a clue there with the whole Ninth Square thing. Um, for whatever reason, the cafe that I worked in said it was in Ninth Square, but technically it's in the Eighth Square or the sixth square depending on how you count them either way maybe there's something there that has yet to present itself either way uh, there's a lot of very interesting information uh, no matter which interview you choose to listen to i found that each time i talked about this subject different aspects were emerging uh, based on the individual hosting the podcast, their questions, and the overall vibe of the conversation and, and where I was mentally that week. So, yeah, that, uh, that's all I have to say about this interview. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed our new episode that we put out this morning uh, with Buzz Coaston, episode 246. There will be another new My Family Thinks I'm Crazy episode out this week, as well as more swap casts like this one. Uh, also, you can go and see an ultra new episode of Project Cheney featuring yours truly. It's on YouTube. It's on all the different podcast apps. Cheney had me on for a huge three-hour episode to talk about Aleister Crowley. I will be airing the audio version of that on this RSS feed in a week or two. So until then, go support Cheney there. And thank you for being here, folks. Get yourself a hit kit, hitkit.us. If you want to support our sponsors, you help support the show. We only reach out to small brands like this, hitkit.us. And some of the other smaller companies that have sponsored us in the past. Uh, 
as for right now, HitKit is the sole sponsor of the show, next to all of the amazing supporters on Patreon, Rockfin, and all those who are kind enough to send in a one-time donation. Everyone who's picked up a copy of the Scene Editions 1 or 2, uh, a couple people just bought Scene Edition 1 uh, today, this morning. So thank you. Shout out to them. Uh, all right, folks. Remember... There will be more episodes this week. We're jam-packing the RSS feed before 2023, so stay tuned, and I'll talk to you soon. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. Vibe with me, y'all. Ride with me, y'all. The power I bring light to the darkest hours Dodging death in a hood Where they picking flowers Misery without the fear The unknown I'm tripping Stop flipping as I battle me I ride pig, hold up What's life with no casualties Learning from the streets No schools, no faculties Thoughts shifting Busting gas and my words a weapon Fucking with that fire But you ain't learned your lesson You ain't earned what you came for I'm a blessing You my homie, don't become a lesson don't be acting like you Superman, put your chest in. Like I ain't gotta say a word for you to get this message. Forever chasing for the green, you could keep the dressing. Poverty is what I've known and that's what I'm addressing. Levels, mind elevated, too high for some to reach. But I ain't came to preach, homie, I just came to teach. When I spit, it's like a study session. Ain't got no love for no bitch who's a slutty messing. But all I know is keep it real and that's what I'm confessing. That's why I'm taking you out of class and I'll be the professor. I done seen souls fly laying on that stretcher. Laying with that four five and my mind was stressing. But I already told myself ain't gonna be no peasant. I'm rapping for the ones who struggle, everything ain't pleasant. Salvation army getting gifts, already knew my present. Hashtag saying goals, I'ma keep them guessing. Look inside the mirror, be the answer to your question. Fucking with me and I might be the cancer if you step in. Shit, I'm like a rock, rock, cut it to the top. And I can never fall, I will never drop. I move it, no brakes, and I'm never gonna stop. And look at all hate, but I got it on lock. Shit, I'm like a rock, rock, cut it to the top. And I can never fall, I will never drop. I move it, no brakes, and I'm never gonna stop. And look at all hate, but I got it on lock, on lock.